Alrighty, the ECMO. It's Zach Shiner, and it's May of 2023. We are back, and I apologize for being tardy. I've been busy doing all kinds of stuff. In fact, I just got back from Manila. Great trip. They do ECMO out in Manila in a place where you have to get consent. Sometimes you even have to get payment before you start your resuscitation, before you open up your defibrillation pads. But they have these capabilities of putting people on ECMO. And so this is exciting. All over the world, people are trying to figure out how to use ECMO. How do they uh, see benefit in it? Where do they organize their systems? And Manila is just one of these places. Now, I want to introduce you to, to a new concept. I have, like I said, been a little bit delinquent on my putting up podcast, but there's so much great stuff going on out there. And John Marinero, who you know, University of New Mexico, game changer in the landscape of uh, eCPR, especially in the U.S., first pre-hospital cases out there in Albuquerque. He is going to team up with me, and we are going to co-host this EDECMO podcast to make it even better than it already is so that we can get out all the information, all the new stuff that's coming out, all the exciting things that you all are doing so we can share with the world, learn from each other, and go from there. Now, this month, John is going to be tackling a topic that's hot in the literature right now, pulmonary embolism. How do you use eCPR? How do you use ECMO to treat these massive PE patients? And there's so much literature going on that's coming out, that's already out. Uh, and one of the questions is, first, does it work? Does, does actual ECMO work for these PE patients and should we be doing it? And then secondarily, what do you do after you get them on pump? Do you give them the TPA or do you just use the heparin? Do you go with catheter-directed TPA or do you do mechanical thrombectomy, embolectomy? And so this is the question. Now, most of this is just noise. Literature is just kind of full of data that's probably not powered to really answer this question. But there might be just a little bit of signal in this idea that mechanical embolectomy may offer benefit to these patients. I'll put in some uh, literature in the, in the notes so that you can just take a look if you're interested. But before you do, I want you to listen to this podcast. Dr. Giuliani is going to be interviewed by John Marinero talking all about ECMO and pulmonary embolism. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hello, this is Dr. John Marinero. I am actually doing my first ED ECMO, and I appreciate Zach Shiner inviting me to help out with this podcast. Uh, I've been on the ED ECMO podcast a couple of times, most recently discussing the inception trial. And uh, today for my first interview, since I've never interviewed anybody before, I'm going to interview one of my colleagues, Dr. Sundeep Guliani from the University of New Mexico. Uh, say hi, Dr. Guliani. Hey guys, how's it going? Gotcha. So Dr. Guliani is a vascular surgeon, a critical care physician, and a trauma surgeon, and he is actually spearheading most of our pulmonary embolism work. The University of New Mexico has a unique program where we have an all-intensivist cannulator group for our ECMO, and um, primarily with the assistance of Dr. Guliani from Vascular, we have moved into uh, being very aggressive with our pulmonary embolism care um, I'm going to have Dr. Guliani give a little bit of a history of pulmonary embolism care at University of New Mexico, and then we're going to talk about the data of using eCPR, or actually, sorry, using eCLS, ECMO life support for uh, saving people with massive pulmonary embolism, and are we doing the right thing? And that's kind of the question that we're asking, and uh, what's the data out there? So, Dr. Guliani, why don't you give a history of us, uh, UNM, using ECMO for massive PE. 
Well, guys, you know, if we if we look back at our institution here in New Mexico, you know, 2000, up until about 2015, 2016, we really didn't have sort of any organized way to take care of PE patients. Uh, and around that time, we began utilizing catheter-directed thrombolysis, like a lot of places uh, in the country for some of the PEs that came in. And it, it, it seemed to work well on stable patients. Um, you know, hemodynamically stable patients that had had RV dysfunction, you know, the submasses. But we we had a, a lot of difficult experiences with um, unstable patients, hemodynamically unstable patients of, of having, you know, code events prior to coming to the OR, being super unstable, et cetera. And so we began around 2017 uh, putting these folks on ECMO. Um, and it started off with kind of a hunch of just feeling as if, you know, how ECMO works, VA ECMO, in terms of uh, decompressing the right side, in terms of augmenting cardiac output, in terms of being able to, you know, put somebody on in the ER or, or a non-operating room environment that it seemed like it should work well. Uh, and so we started doing that in 2017, and we've had a, a lot of great results um, utilizing it in the very unstable uh, PE patient, and so this kind of morphed into us creating our, our you know, what we kind of call our Help New Mexico team, which is our heart embolism lung team, uh, which is is an intensivist run uh, team that basically responds to all um, submassive and massive PEs. And so at our shop, we um, once we become are are aware of these patients, um, we we basically screen them uh, in the unstable patients, the massive PE patients, we, as a first line treatment, put them on VA ECMO. Uh, and so that's kind of how our our practice has evolved the last uh, last several years. All right. Well, you know, there are people out there who would say that is crazy. And I would say that initially when we first tried to do that, we had a lot of naysayers. And uh, you know, listening back onto uh, Zach Shiner's previous ECPR, sorry, again, ECMO talk on massive PE, it was actually started off with him talking about all the trials and tribulations that Lionel Lama and other people have gone through to get their ECMO programs going. And this really was our first foray into saying this is where we should use ECMO to save lives was massive PE. And we did it based on um, Zach Kahn out of uh, University of Maryland and then uh, went on to New York University, Langone Health, um, paper triage and optimization, a new paradigm in the treatment of massive PE from Journal of Thoracic Cardiovascular Surgery in 2018. And we looked at their data and their data was basically they reduced mortality uh, pretty significantly in one year from 96%, uh, I'm sorry, from they, they improved survival from 73% to 96% by changing to a VA ECMO first protocol as opposed to surgical embolectomy protocol. And I know we published a paper too, Dr. Guliani, if you can go ahead and talk a little bit about our paper. So, you know, before we started putting people on ECMO, before we had some sort of organized system, you know, in 2016, we had an 80% mortality from massive PE at our hospital. I mean, an outrageously high. These were just the patients that died in front of us, meaning that were diagnosed. Uh, and 
the paper that we had published uh, in 2021 in, in Journal of Vascular Surgery, we had a 76% survival utilizing VA ECMO first as a first-line treatment for massive And this, again, was all comers. So these were patients that came into the hospital uh, and were diagnosed with their massive But this also included patients that came in in cardiac arrest uh, that that we put them on VA ECMO uh, and then they were diagnosed afterwards. And so when we look at our subset of patients that did not have a cardiac arrest, but had a massive P and, and, and that subgroup of patients uh, has a survival in our hospital of a hundred percent in our paper. And then knock on wood in the last four years, you know, we haven't had a patient die that we have put on ECMO that has arrived to us without needing cardiac arrest prior. And so I think those are very striking results for a disease that historically has, you know, mortality that is anywhere from, from 25 to 50%. Uh, and so I think that, you know, we have come to believe that if you have a massive PE, you know, if you come to us and you're in cardiac arrest, if you come to us dead, you're going to have a, a tougher time getting through this. But if you come to us alive, even if you have a massive PE, your survival should be near 100% in our hands. And that's what we kind of feel. And I think that's what our practice has, has shown over the last several years. All right. So let's define PE here. So massive pulmonary embolism is a person who has a large or presumed large clot burden, typically a central clot burden with an RV to LV ratio greater than one, a systolic pressure less than 90 or requiring vasopressors to have a pressure greater than 90 or a systolic drop in your blood pressure for a previously hypertensive person of 40 millimeters or more. That is the criteria of a massive pulmonary embolism. Submassive pulmonary embolism is a patient who has an RV to LV ratio greater than one that is not hypotensive, does not have a pressure less than 90, is not requiring vasopressors, and has a BNP greater than 500 or a positive troponin, including high sensitivity troponin. So now we have this population of patients who comes in. And I think that you know both you and I have found that as this program has gone along, we went from having in 2016, as you said, five massive PEs of which four died and one survived despite getting full dose TPA per usual, 80% mortality, to from 2017 to 2019 with our ECMO first protocol, a 0% mortality unless you were in cardiac arrest, and then a mortality of approximately, if I remember right, 50% if you actually had been in cardiac arrest, um, getting uh, it with the using ECMO first. And those people died of, of neurologic complications from being in cardiac arrest. Uh, not necessarily uh, hemodynamic consequences. So using our protocol, using Zach Kahn's protocol of ECMO first, we have really changed uh, the the paradigm of care here. But now tell tell me a little bit about uh, Dr. Gugliotti as a vascular surgeon, as a person who deals with blood clots throughout the body. What do you do? What is our What's the situation you have to address once the person's on ECMO? What happens to that clot? Why does the person survive or not survive or need an, a procedure or not need a procedure? So I, I think that, you know, when we put patients on VA ECMO uh, for a massive PE, often they're in cardiogenic shock uh, and they are in a hypoperfuse state. And what we kind of find 
which has become the norm, what we're accustomed to is that these patients rapidly improve after they're put on. And that's because the circuit is decompressing the right ventricle and it's simultaneously augmenting their cardiac output. And it works great to correct that shock state. And so I think our paper showed that, you know, uh, the mean, you know, freedom from vasopressor need was about 10 hours and, and, and patients were very rapidly correct their shock. Now, once that happens, you have a patient that is, you know, alive, that has corrected their shock, that is normal perfused, that now has an obstructive clot burden in the right ventricle uh, that, that they need addressed. And so, you know, initially back in the catheter thrombolysis era, we would anticoagulate those spokes for a, a couple of days. Uh, and the purpose of the anticoagulation was just, to, you know, autolysis of clot and to give the right ventricle time to sort of reach an equilibrium with what was going on. Uh, and what we kind of found is, you know, again, back then, we didn't really have access to pulmonary embolectomy expertise at our hospital. And so we we would basically keep people on ECMO for three to five days, and then we would wean the circuit and see if they needed some clot reduction procedure, which in our, our shop was catheter thrombolysis. And what we kind of found surprisingly is a majority of patients didn't, you know, and so 76% of patients um, in our study didn't need an adjunct intervention uh, after a couple of days of ECMO. And so we simply just lysed clot and were able to just wean the circuit and then we just decannulated them. And so the other 25% uh, would, would go on to need procedures because they would have refractory RV failure um, when when the circuit was weaned. And so that's kind of what our our rough algorithm um, has become. And again, you know, it, it I think one of the important things for that we have realized in, in utilizing ECMO is that, you know, there's different ways that you die from your massive PE. And so one way is that you have cardiogenic shock uh, and you, you know, you, you, circle the drain and you die, but not everybody dies that way. Some people die of abrupt arrhythmias. And so a massive PE patient that is on 10 mics of levofed is a completely different patient than a urosepsis patient that's on 10 mics of levofed, because we would find that these patients would, you know, would get a little bit of fentanyl for pain and they would have a code event, you know? And so uh, I think over time we have um, utilize ECMO because it mitigates malignant arrhythmias uh, in addition to kind of correcting their shock. But that's kind of what our, our kind of rough algorithm um, has has become. And it's it's evolved some with the PE, uh, newer PE devices, but that's what we kind of generally do. Yeah. And it's really tremendous the work that we have done to change our practice. And we now have a situation where almost everybody who has a massive PE has a window. And that window is while their RV pressures are getting to 40. In a normal heart, uh, a right heart can generate pressures typically up to about 40. And then at that point, it fails. And when it starts to fail, that is when the person starts to die. And so uh, at our shop, we're very aggressive with echocardiography, we put uh, probes on very on everybody in the ER. Every cardiac arrest or every cardiogenic shock that occurs at University Hospital, the ECMO team responds, uh, and we put sheaths in per the reanimate kind of process. And we're very aggressive, and that has really what has changed the needle on us. Um, we've actually had a number of patients where 
you know, we're pushing amps of Epi to keep them alive, to just get them on ECMO, you know, and again, we can deploy ECMO in about five to 10 minutes in the ER. And, um, and so it is, I, I find having a system, a system that is put together where, uh, you using ECMO first for these massive PE patients and letting them get sorted out as long as they're not over 75, you know, no drastic other comorbid conditions, no, uh, you know, liver failure, end-stage renal failure, uh, end-stage lung disease, kind of the typical ELSO type recommendations. We've really moved the needle. But the other group we've moved the needle on is our submassive pulmonary embolism patients. And, you know, you can look at a lot of the data and whether you're looking at the Moppet trial, the Topco trial, the Ultima trial, all of those, or, or the Pytho trial, using uh, thrombolysis catheters has not moved the needle much on outcomes. And we are starting to do a little different work here with our submassive PEs as well as our massive PEs. You mentioned the fact that we're now being more aggressive with embolectomies on our ECMO patients. Why don't you talk about how we've blended uh, catheter suction embolectomy into our ECMO practice as well as our non-ECMO submassive PE process? So if you if you kind of look at the the evolution of PE interventions, um, it, it kind of in many ways mimics, um, I think, how we sort of approached STEMIs, you know, fifteen or twenty years ago. And so there was a time where you, you know, if you had a STEMI, you got you got a systemic TPA dose. Uh, and 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 since that time, we have evolved to, you know, door to balloon. You know, meaning you know, revascularization of coronaries and in a time-sensitive process, and that is because the devices, um, endovascular devices, evolved to facilitate doing that, and and that's what what I think um, up until around five or six years ago, what PE care was kind of largely missing. Meaning we had somewhat you know primitive endovascular devices. Uh, and, and amongst them was catheter-directed thrombolysis. And, and catheter thrombolysis basically is you put two small catheters in the pulmonary arteries and you drip drip TPA uh, over some period of time. And the purpose of it is to, to over a period of time, correct right ventricle failure. And, and it, it worked reasonably well. But the problem is that there are a lot of people that you couldn't really use that with. And so, for example, if you're a patient admitted to the hospital with a subdural, uh, or you have other bleeding contraindications, or you're you're somebody that's on the sicker side that needs immediate clot resolution. Um, those were always kind of poor candidates, and whatever kind of thrombectomy devices um, existed were were not that good. They didn't work really well. And so, you know, a, a major thing that has changed in the last couple of years is the availability of of you know, the flow retriever device, which is, which is made by a company called Inari. And it basically is a large bore thrombectomy device. And so if you, if you think of a VA ECMO, you know, if you think of a venous cannula as being 24 French or 25 French is what we kind of put in typically, um, you know, this is a 24 French thrombectomy catheter uh, that you, you basically uh, navigate through the heart and into the, the pulmonary arteries and you put it up against clot and you, you do a, a large bore suction embolectomy. And, and we started using this device, you know, about two years ago, and it really has um, really revolutionized how we um, have treated patients 
here, both submassives and massives, because we kind of have seen almost a, a complete conversion from catheter thrombolysis, which is what we were typically doing um, to, to this thrombectomy device. And it also has kind of changed how we have approached ECMO patients that are on, uh, on, you know, are on ECMO because of peas. And so like, you know, as I mentioned initially, initially at our shop, if you got put on VA ECMO, uh, we kept you on it for three or five days before we made an assessment of whether you needed something else done, because we didn't want to be lysing you while you're on ECMO because it's a super high bleeding risk. And so um, what has changed now with this device is you don't need to give lytics to patients. You just, you need to do a procedure on them without lytics. And so now we're much more earlier uh, going to use adjuncts like thrombectomy in, in mass PE patients um, that have came in. And so what that has allowed us to do is that, you know, there's a, a, a segment of patients that we were always more reticent to put on ECMO because they were higher bleeding risks. You know, we wouldn't want to put, uh, you know, a, a patient with a subarachnoid head bleed uh, on ECMO for five days uh, if they had a massive PE, because, you know, we, would, we wouldn't think a patient could tolerate that long on ECMO without having major bleeding complications. And so this has allowed us, you know, for example, to put those type of patients on ECMO and then have you know, uh, to stabilize them, to kind of save their life and then, and then pursue thrombectomies early, uh, as a way to be able to, to remove clot, to correct their RV failure, and then be able to get them off of ECMO pretty quickly. And so that's been kind of one of the ways that these devices have, I think, uh, changed how we have, um, how we have, you know, utilized, uh, our ECMO program for PE. Yeah. The other thing we have done as, uh, is, on some of the more precarious submassive PEs or kind of massive lights, maybe. So their pressure is like right around 90 or they're on some small, you know, 0.02 of Levo or something amount when we're taking them to the cath lab uh, or the OR for their uh, embolectomy is we have ECMO on standby. And so we are in the operating room with the ECMO circuit, with the ECMO uh, specialists, and um, and we act as standby. And if the person gets unstable, we can crash them onto ECMO. Uh, and I find that that is a good use of ECMO. Um, and for, for various ECMO programs, I would say that the ability to offer to your surgeons backup ECMO, whether it's just recently we did a case with a uh, IVC tumor and thrombus uh, that we were on standby ECMO to do basically kind of a uh, hepatic bypass uh, while they uh, cross-clamp the IVC, the infracardiac IVC, um, or for these uh, patients to do this um, to protect the uh, patient from having untoward event during the suction embolectomy. Dr. Guliani, if you can talk just a little bit about your thoughts on um, using ECMO as a um, as a on submassive uh, patients that are that are meeting with criteria I was just talking about, where they're a little bit unstable. Does it make the the provider doing the procedure feel more safe having ECMO as standby? Absolutely. There's never a scenario. I would not prefer someone to be on ECMO uh, to get a P thrombectomy. Why is that? Well, 
when you put the device up again, it's a huge 24 French device and, 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 and most, you know, what I call kind of standard submassives uh, are, are tolerate the device just fine. The folks that we get concerned about are what I call kind of the, the submassive heavy patients. These are patients that, you know, if a submassive PE patient by definition is hemodynamically stable, this is a patient that has a blood pressure of 100, not a blood pressure of 140. And so uh, this is a patient that is tachycardic, um, but is maintaining a blood pressure. This is a patient that is, you know, maybe requiring a non-rebreather or very dysmic. And so they kind of may not meet criteria for a massive PE, but they are encroaching upon it in their physiology. And so I think that subset of patients is at higher risk of having periprocedural complications when you're trying to put uh, a big device through the heart. You know, what are examples of that? One is arrhythmias. You know, I mean, I think you're much more likely if your starting point is 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 compensatory tachycardia, you're much more likely to have that tachycardia turn into VTAC when you're trying to put a pigtail catheter, you know, uh, through the ventricle into the PAs or you're trying to advance a device. Likewise, when we, you know, when we put the device up, we were temporarily partially occluding, you know, the pulmonic valve or one of the PAs and, and, and patients can tolerate that, uh, you know, more poorly if their starting point is, is, is more precarious. And so, um, ECMO obliviates all of those issues. If a patient has, uh, you know, an arrhythmia with the device, that's an asymptomatic event, uh, for a patient on ECMO. If a patient has, you know, hypotension because you're occluding their RV outflow tract, that's, that's an irrelevant event if you're on ECMO. And so ECMO makes everything safer in those precarious patients. Now, obviously you're putting somebody you know, ECMO is not a small thing. And so I think putting the patient in an environment or in a situation where you can afford them the ability to go on ECMO quickly if they need it is the best of both worlds. Because then if you identify the patient, you know, as, as having high risk features or you put a pigtail up and the patient immediately starts having, you know, weird arrhythmias, you pull the pigtail out and you say, this is not a patient that's going to be able to tolerate this procedure um, without going on ECMO. And so this, this, I think the device has changed how we manage things because in the past we kind of had just had to put those people on ECMO, you know? And so we, we kind of said, Hey, you know, you're going to have to go on ECMO because, but, but now we can basically say, well, there's, there's a, a segment of, you know, what I call kind of massive light or submassive heavy patients that, um, will be able to potentially tolerate a thrombectomy um, or maybe even need just, just via ECMO support in the room, you know, where, where, you know, when you remove their saddle with a thrombectomy, they're going to get better very quickly. And so I think that may, that allows one to maybe have a shortened ECMO course um, and, and, and to either have a peri-procedural ECMO support, or maybe have a day of ECMO support or have it on standby. So you, you feel that you can do a, thorough thrombectomy and know that you have a backup plan if the patient doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't tolerate that well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, you know, we have had people that we've put on ECMO, uh, you know, most of our massive pulmonary embolism ECMOs, we do with the patient awake. We cannulate them awake. We just do local anesthesia, put them on, uh, on ECMO 
Because what we have found is if you sedate a submassive heavy or a massive PE light, those people will often convert themselves drastically into a uh, a massive PE. So we are we tend to do almost all of our ECMO work with the people uh, just under uh, like a very little bit of versed and fentanyl, um, very little, um, if 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 any, uh, and local anesthesia. And the same thing with our cannulation of ECMO. We do not intubate these people, then cannulate. We cannulate them and then just never intubate them. Um, so okay, I'm gonna just hit you up with uh, two other things. Tell me and uh, about the um, about your thoughts on giving TPA um, in a massive PE when you have ECMO available. I think that ECMO is the only device or intervention that is going to work 100% of the time in a massive PE patient. 100% of the time without failure. Everything else, and I put thrombectomy in this, I put systemic TPA, I put catheter thrombolysis, may work part of the time, but they won't work 100% of the time. And to me, if you're at a institution where you can rapidly put somebody on ECMO, and I say rapidly put on an unstable patient, it's going to work 100% of the time and we can do it quickly. Now, that's very different if I'm sitting at home at two o'clock in the morning and you know we get called that someone has a blood pressure of 60 in the ER with a massive PE. I don't think that's a good patient to be waiting on ECMO. And so I think you have to be careful about you know dangling ECMO in a way that it causes delays of care uh, in a patient getting systemic TPA. So like if you took those two scenarios, uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sitting in the ER uh, with the perfusionist next to me, and there's a massive PE patient with a blood pressure of 65 or 70. I would just put that patient on ECMO, and it will work immediately, 100 percent of the time. Uh, conversely. That same scenario where I'm in my bed at two o'clock in the morning and I'm driving in, I would say give systemic TPA because a lot can happen, you know, in the 25 minutes between me hearing a phone call in my bed and me, you know, getting into the ER. And so I think that's how I kind of have come to believe systemic TPA. I mean, I, I think we have put patients on ECMO and I think we even had an abstract showing that not there wasn't a huge difference when they got systemic TPA. But I think anecdotally, I observed that, you know, you're going to be at higher bleeding risks if you're getting a large dose of TPA on the heels of ECMO. And I just don't think it's necessary. If you can get them on ECMO quickly, I think it's ECMO works, you know, and it's always going to work. And so that's why I don't um, um, feel too strongly about giving it if you're, if you're going on pretty quickly. Gotcha. And so just to remind people, so we're again talking about veno-arterial ECMO. Veno-venous ECMO has no role in massive pulmonary embolism and uh, it's veno-arterial ECMO. And that's an important, you know, and I think that's a huge, important delineation that, that we should make because, you know, even if you look at the ELSO data, you know, there's a segment of these patients that go on VV ECMO. And that's a huge, like, no, no, no in our hospital, meaning that, like, you know, if you're hypoxic from your PE, you have underlying RV issues going on that are driving that process. And again, you know, you, you don't get protection from malignant arrhythmias. You don't get augmentation of cardiac output. Uh, you don't get immediate RV decompression from VV ECMO. If anything, you can exacerbate those things. So to me, VA ECMO ends up being the perfect solution to addressing the pathophysiology of how a PE kills you, which is RV dilation, 
causing LV dysfunction and cardiogenic shock, then leading to either a cardiogenic shock death or a abrupt arrhythmia causing a death. And so VA ECMO, to, VA ECMO uh, specifically ends up being uh, the best, you know, um, best way to reverse that. And so we put everybody on VA ECMO and not, there's no VV ECMOs. If you're hypoxic you're get, and you have RV dysfunction, you're getting put on VA ECMO uh, at our shop. And, you know, we have about 20% of nights where we do not have an in-house ECMO uh, cannulator. And the way we do it is we have uh, the night intensivist will go down, uh, assess the patient, and then activate us. And then we start driving in, and they typically will maybe put in the venous sheath. And then when we get in there, we put in the arterial sheath and put the person on. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very good system. So Dr. Guliani, I really appreciate your time talking about the University of New Mexico VA ECMO program for massive PE. Um, and I appreciate you being my first interview for ED ECMO. And uh, hopefully Zach doesn't edit this entire thing and, and, uh, and, and some of what I said gets through. And uh, we will pick uh, more topics as we move through. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to the ED ECMO audience. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak about more topics in the future. So thank you very much, Zach. And thank you very much, Dr. Guliani. Have a nice day. Thanks for inviting me, guys.